welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, January 28th, which means we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio via Skype, as usual, we're always happy to have him here, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. It's been an interesting Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you care to share just a little bit of that with our listeners? Because, I mean, I don't I don't want to overstep my bounds here, but as a parent, I was, I was feeling for you. <laughs> well, my three-year-old daughter at uh, her preschool class, she was she tripped over the stool for the toilet and wound up whacking her head on it. Um, and whenever that happens, whenever it's a head injury, they have to have a parent come in and take a look. So we're recording this a little bit later than usual. <laughs> but she is totally fine. She was running around giggling. Other than a little bit of a goose egg on her forehead, you wouldn't even know anything happened. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've gone through that once or five times with my kids growing up and, and it's <laughs> I appreciate that they that they have that policy. It it doesn't make it any easier. But um hey, you know, big shout out sure. to Austin for being so flexible to change his schedule as well. So we're able to get you guys the show. And speaking of a show, we've got a big one today when we're gonna talk about the latest in the developments with Synchrony and Walmart. Uh, looks like Square has a new business debit card. We've got a listener email to get to. We'll tap into Twitter. We'll give you one to watch. Uh, but we're going to begin the week with the winners and losers so far this earnings season uh, with the big banks. And Matt, we had talked about a lot of these big banks uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we're looking at some of the opportunities and the challenges in, in in the quarter they were reporting. And you've you've gone through these releases. You've seen some of the winners. You've seen some of the losers. Tell our listeners uh, what what you what you found. Well, for the most part, there weren't too many big surprises. Um, banks, as a rule, are a generally predictable industry, especially commercial banks. Um, having said that. There were a couple that stood out. Bank of America was, I think, the best out of the big four banks. Um, they just keep improving and keep getting better and better and are really doing a good job of putting their pre-financial crisis self well in the rearview mirror. Um, if I had told you in, say, 2010, 2011, that Bank of America was going to be probably the best looking out of the big four banks, you would have told me I was crazy. I, yeah, I, I know I would have. And I mean, I think just a year ago, it seemed like Brian Moynihan and Bank of America, they were stepping in something new on a daily basis. And now it seems like they've passed that torch on to Wells Fargo now, huh? Right. I mean, a few years ago, if I had told you that anyone but Wells Fargo is the best run bank out of the big four, you would have called me crazy. <laughs> so times have certainly changed in that regard. Um, but the biggest surprise in my mind to earnings were the two big investment banks which are generally less easy to predict. So if there is a surprise, that's a lot of times that's where you're going to find it. Um, and Goldman Sachs had a blowout quarter. Goldman had been one of the worst performing bank stocks because of the drama related to the Malaysia um, bond fund gone bad. And that's still definitely an overhang on the stock, which is why it's trading for significantly less than book value. But the bank, um, its earnings were just excellent um, lending and investing revenue, which includes the Marcus division, was up by 56% year over year, Wow, which is huge. And Marcus is still a very small component of the business. They just announced recently um, at the Money 2020 conference I was at that they're expanding into wealth management, Main Street. They've already expanded into personal loans and savings products for Main Street. So now this will bring you know even more people into their ecosystem who Historically, Goldman's been a 
wealth manager for the the 0.01%. (laughs) So this is really opening new doors for them. And it is, it's been successful so far, plain and simple. Um, They, they made their first personal loan, just for example, in October, 2016, I believe. And two years later, they hit 4 billion in personal loans, which is a drop in the bucket in terms of a big bank, but is quicker than, you know, a lending club even got to that level. So it's impressive growth so far and tons more room to grow. Uh, CEO David Solomon uh, at a recent presentation said that possible avenues include mortgages, auto loans, uh, insurance products, checking accounts that offered online that paid nice interest rates. So there's a ton of room to expand this. And I really, I've said it before, but I really don't think the market appreciates what a big force in commercial banking Goldman Sachs could become. It's got a phenomenal brand name and it doesn't have any of that legacy infrastructure that kind of weighs on profits that any of the other big banks have. It doesn't have branches or anything like that. So it has this great opportunity to grow and it's really been reflected in their earnings on the other side of the aisle. Morgan Stanley, um, their fourth quarter was a big disappointment and it was kind of a, it was a standout one because bank earnings generally were good. Everyone pretty much, you know, beat earnings estimates, beat revenue estimates. Morgan Stanley did not. They missed on both the top and bottom line. Um, trading revenue was particularly weak. Um, Morgan Stanley's fixed income trading was down 30%. I think uh, Goldman's and a few of the others were down 18%. So it was a so while trading revenue was pretty weak across the board, it was you know weaker than peers, which is always a bad sign. Right. You know, if, if a certain metric's generally terrible and equally terrible, it's not necessarily a bad sign for a company. But when you're underperforming your peers is really when you want to watch out. And that's what happened with Morgan Stanley. Um, wealth management business missed expectations as well. And it just all in all was not a great quarter. When you miss on the top and bottom lines, it's, there's usually a reason for it. And there was, and it's their trading, which is, like I said, that's the most unpredictable part of banking, in my opinion, is trading revenue. So don't read too much into one quarter's trading revenue, but all in all, Morgan Stanley was the disappointment and Goldman Sachs was the winner. So you saw over the past couple of weeks since earnings, you've seen a lot of price divergence between the two. Sure. Um, real quick, going back to Goldman Sachs for a second, because it just made me think of um, something I'd like to get your opinion. Do you feel like Goldman Sachs, given the the move to open up their, their lending to a bigger audience, pursuing Main Street, um, given Goldman Sachs' reputation, the brand, the, the, the sort of the the aspirational maybe nature of that brand from just your everyday Main Streeter. Do you think there's a parallel with what they're doing with what American Express had to do a little while back in in opening their product suite up to more uh, customers, taking that brand that they've had, that they've done so well over so long nurturing, it was a bit of an aspirational brand, um, opening that up to more more clients with more products. Do you feel like Goldman Sachs benefits from that kind of uh, boost at all? Sure. And that's a, actually a great comparison. Um, Why, thank I mean, you. If, for those who aren't familiar, um, American Express was a credit card for rich people up until like you know a <laughs> that, decade yeah, ago. Or exactly. So. I feel like most uh, people on Main Street probably feel like, oh, forget about Goldman Sachs. That's just for rich people, but apparently not so anymore, right? Right. And now anybody with twenty bucks can walk into a Walmart and get a prepaid Amex card. Yep. So I mean that's 
the extreme end of their product line, but they, they've kind of become, you know, a credit card company for Main Street. They still sure. have their high-end products, and in my opinion, they're the best in the business at high-end credit cards. I mean, I uh, the Amex Platinum is, in my opinion, the best credit card product on the market. It's in my wallet right now. Um, but they've done a great job of opening their business up, and it's leveraging their brand name. And Am- or I'm sorry, Goldman Sachs actually has in my mind, a unique advantage over peers, not just the brand name. I mean, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, these are all good brand names too, but they all have, you know, this big legacy branch infrastructure overhanging their heads there. I mean, all pretty much all of them are reducing their branch count over the past few years and continue to do so because it's really eating into their costs and eating into their ability to be competitive. Um, If you see Goldman Sachs right now on their Marcus savings account pays 2.25%. Um, Bank of America and Wells Fargo pay about 0.1%. Wow. So, and, and the reason that they can afford to do that is because they're not paying all these costs associated with branches, not just the physical buildings, but, you know, fit, paper costs, employment costs, you know, there's a ton of costs involved in opening a branch and Goldman doesn't have to worry about any of that. And that I think is going to be even more of a competitive advantage than its brand name. Well, earnings season is just getting underway. I'm sure we have uh, more banks coming, but it's it's definitely been an interesting um, interesting few weeks thus far. Uh, okay, let's let's take a look at this. Back in November, uh, Matt, we took a listener question from at BT Capital Twelve on Twitter. Uh, there was a situation brewing with Synchrony and Walmart and litigation that the massive retailer was threatening. Uh, Matt, we're going to let you take a little bit of a victory lap here, and I'm going to go ahead and hand it to you and, and explain away. Yeah, I don't. I thank you for giving me my I told you so moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> a few months ago, or uh, in the middle of last year, actually, over the summer, Walmart announced they were dropping Synchrony as their co-branding partner. Um, you know, big account. I liken this to kind of using another Amex comparison when Amex lost Costco. Ah. Um, so it's to that magnitude. It's a big deal to them. Um, but the real drama came a little bit later. Well, one, as everyone knows, Walmart and Sam's Club are the same company, but they're two different credit card products in terms of Synchrony's line of products. Right. So there was a big question mark as to what this meant for their Sam's Club business, which is also a huge part of Synchrony's business. Do they keep that? Does that go to Capital One where Walmart's going? Um, and two, Walmart announced that they were suing Synchrony for $800 million related to losses on their credit card portfolio. They said uh, Synchrony didn't do a good job of analyzing credit risk and there were bigger losses than expected and they weren't making as much money as a result. So that was a big question overhanging. I pretty much, I I forget my exact words, but I said that it was somewhat of a negotiation tactic because Synchrony had to decide whether it wanted to keep the Walmart loan portfolio, sell it to Capital One or somebody else. And kind of, there were a few things that needed to happen before the, you know, the relationship could be completely dissolved. Right. So just recently, this was also a big surprise of earnings season. (laughs) Um, Synchrony pretty much said, I mean, not only did they have a great quarter, but they pretty much said the two things investors really, really wanted to hear that they're keeping the Sam's Club business. The Sam's Club credit card will remain a Synchrony product. That's a big deal. And even bigger, that Walmart is completely dropping its lawsuit against Synchrony. Um, an $800, bill, $800 million 
you know, weight off their shoulders. It is a very nice, nice little Christmas present, late Christmas present for Synchrony investors. So the markets hate uncertainty. Uncertainty has been lifted in regards to the litigation risk. Sam's Club is still a Synchrony product. So the hit they took from the Walmart loss is now just confined, confined to their Walmart product. So this is a big win for Synchrony shareholders, which you're seeing reflected in the share price. But Synchrony still trades for a very cheap multiple. They're um, a very economically sensitive business. Uh, store credit cards tend to, um, th- like default rates tend to really oh, yeah. move with yep. recessions and things like that. But their profit margin is so great that it would literally take another great recession to really put them in the red. Um, so I think the market's fears in that regard are overblown. We just got some great relief. The business did really, really well this past quarter and this past year. And I still love Synchrony at a stock, but shareholders who listened to me uh, <laughs> last year got handsomely rewarded this past week. Hey now, everybody. Good job. I Matt. wish I would have shut up about it and bought some <laughs> myself, but well, unfortunately that wasn't the case. That's, yep, that's, you know, that's not our job, I guess. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, hey, it sounds like all's well that ends well and good call because I remember the show talking about that. And for listeners, for posterity, go back to that November show, listen to what Matt said because. Uh, he he did uh, he he nailed this one so good job Matt. Uh, let's pivot over to uh, our favorite little payment processor merchant provider Square. Uh, it seems like they're always in the news. They're they're apparently in the business of not sitting still. Matt, uh, last week the company just released another product to their merchants. Uh, this time it is a it's it's a business debit card. They're calling it Square Card, um, and it's something that's going to help businesses manage their cash flow by essentially eliminating the time between making the sale and having the funds available. And, and really, what we've seen as as cash becomes a smaller portion of of the money that's being spent, not only here domestically but really globally, a lot of this just boils down to time and making the funds available. And so, the quicker you can do that, the better off you're going to be. And these tech companies are able to build out pretty robust risk profiles that allow them to do that. Um, I, I thought that it was pretty interesting. This partnership is actually with Mastercard, uh, where you look at Square Cash, and that's with Visa, right? Yes, correct. So, what do you um, think about my, this this debit card? Well, the the Square strategy generally seems to be to build their ecosystem as strongly as possible, which is a great business model. It worked really well for Apple. Yeah. Um, so, Square is definitely trying to build its ecosystem, and one of the thing that I found the most interesting is that this card offers Square sellers instant access to their money. So, somebody. If say like a I don't know a coffee shop uses Square to accept payments, somebody swipes for a five dollar cup of coffee. That five dollars is instantly available to the seller through this debit card. If they want to either spend the money as a, at anywhere Mastercard's accepted or access it through an ATM, that's instantly available, which is a big deal. But the thing that really stuck out to me is that Square is offering users of this card a two and three quarter percent discount at any other Square seller. So they're incentivizing their own merchants to use other Square sellers to kind of, you know, keep the money in the family. Sure. And that's really a unique way to strengthen the e- ecosystem. And I think unique is really my key word when it comes to Square because they're really 
like you said, they're in the news seemingly almost every week with some new product, new offering, whatever. And all of their the things they're using to strengthen their ecosystem are really unique, meaning that no one else is really doing this. Yep. I don't think I don't think the PayPal credit card gives you a discount for using another seller that accepts PayPal. Um, just to name one example, or you know, Visa doesn't give you a discount for using your card anywhere else Visa's accepted. Yep. For for example. So it's a really unique way to, um, an innovative way to, you know, ex- strengthen their ecosystem. Um, I mean, competitive risk is really everybody's biggest concern when it comes to Square. You know, is PayPal going to steal their market share? Is somebody else going to come up with a cost-effective way for small businesses to accept credit cards? What's to prevent that from taking Square's business? And the answer is things like this are what's going to prevent it from taking Square's business. So I love this product. I think it's a lot more significant than the market is giving it credit for right now. Yeah, a lot of value in the network, and I think that's what we continue to talk about. Square is that they they've built out a very uh, very robust network, and and they continue to solicit from their merchant partners what do they what do their merchant partners want the most? They're asking their customers what they want. They get that feedback and they start to build and offer these new products. And I tell you, I mean, I, I was I was only half kidding when when I said it seems like Squares is in the business of not sitting still because really in this space, um, in the payment space, as a tech company like that, you you need to be innovating and bringing new new products to market at a rapid pace. And it certainly seems like they're doing that. And, and furthermore, it seems like they're it seems like they're doing it well. It seems like they're bringing products that people really like. So um, it, it seems like this is a company that's just. Continuing to do what we've hoped it would do, and and I suspect that uh, shareholders like us and our listeners uh, feel pretty good about the fact that that uh, we all own shares today. Definitely, that was. I still call that the best investment I ever made. <laughs> that's that's not a bad one. <laughs> the worst investment I ever made was not buying more. Uh, well, you know, hey, sometimes you know you got to at least diversify a little bit, right? There's, there's no such thing as a sure thing, I guess. Um, but uh, hey, you know, let them just keep on doing what they're doing, and I'll be happy with it. Uh, let's take a look over at Twitter real quick. I just wanted to call out a couple of tweets that came in over the past couple of weeks. Uh, nothing that we really need to respond to. I just thought there were some pretty good pieces of advice worth uh, reiterating for our uh, listeners out there today. Um, first one here from at Matt Laswell. And he says, remember, being truly diversified means there's always something doing badly. So don't freak out about it. And Matt's exactly right. That's the whole point of being diversified is if you have enough diversification in your portfolio, there's always going to be something that's missing the mark. But when you're well diversified, you don't care because you got other winners uh, to, to pull up the slack there. So good tweet there, Matt. And from at Milo McMahon, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, McMahon, because I had a roommate in college, uh, McMahon, but I think this is Milo McMahon. Um, Milo says, I'm a firm believer in the theory that retail investors have two key advantages over fund managers. Number one, we're not under pressure from anyone to do something clever on a day-to-day basis. And number two, we have a much longer time horizon because our livelihood doesn't hinge on quarter-to-quarter results. And I think that is very well said. I think that's very much in line with what we... uh, how we invest here at the Fool, and what we try to talk about all of the time on our shows—just a, a good good point there. And I wanted to make sure to shine shine a light on those two tweets because because uh, I liked them. 
I think the second one might have actually been from Peter Lynch under an alias. Ah, that's possible. All right. I mean, they, you know, I mean, everybody's uh, there's there's a lot of good stuff that Lynch uh, Lynch has left out there for us for sure. Um, all right, Matt, we wanted to d- jump in here and, and answer an email. There's an email that we received um, while uh, we were away. This this email came from PT in Utah, and. Basically, he's asking us about Zell, and this this was an, a situation. My wife was going to Vegas for a, a birthday party with her friend. She owes money to the one that got it all set up. Her friend requested that she Venmo her the funds, and um, his immediate response was, well, hey, just use Zell because his wife wasn't using Venmo. And so, long story short, she used Zelle, transfer the funds, no fees, easy to do, and you don't have to download another app. Can you speak to how Zelle can affect the the war on cash basket, this general idea of the war on cash basket? And it was a good question because I think it's it's something worth noting. I think anybody who has a bank account with uh, Wells or Bank of America or any any of the big banks, you probably have access to Zelle. Um, I know I'm a I'm Bank of America account holder. And I have access to Zelle. Now, with that said, I've never used it, um, and I think uh, you know his question keys in on something that's worth noting. My initial response to that is that while Zelle is something out there, it's a nice value add for people who have those accounts. Um, I think that when you look at companies like PayPal and Square and the services they offer, like Venmo and Zoom and whatnot, those are services that are being built more for the younger users in mind who are coming up into the the banking world as as they're growing up. So I look at my kids, for example, at fourteen and thirteen or twelve and a half years old. And you know they're a little bit more of like that Venmo target versus something like Zelle uh, is with a Bank of America account. Now it's not to say that Zelle is not a threat. I mean I think Zelle absolutely is going to continue to hold its own, um, but it is a very big market opportunity. And I don't think Zelle is something that necessarily threatens smaller companies like PayPal or Square. I do think uh, it probably keeps them on their toes. What do you think about it, Matt? Yeah, I think. Um the one thing to keep in mind is just how many resources the people behind Zelle have. Um, and um, if you're not familiar, Zelle is kind of a a project that was funded by a bunch of the big banks altogether. Yep. And the banks that funded Zelle have something like, you know, four or five trillion dollars in assets, um, you know, a ton of resources at their disposal. So I think Square is an extremely innovative company. Same could be said for PayPal with cash and Venmo, but not that it's a threat to Square or Venmo, but you got to, it's got to keep them on their toes. Just how much, I mean, you think Square is a big company. It's Square is tiny compared to these banks, same with (laughs) PayPal. So it's just, it's a, it's a question of resources in my mind that when it comes to like how much you have to worry about a certain competitive threat and Square and Venmo were the first movers or Venmo especially was really the first mover there. But I think they still should, you know, strive to innovate and one up the banks and kind of beat them at their own game because the banks have a lot of resources they could throw at building competitive infrastructure if they really wanted to. Yeah, you're right. I think uh, banks do have a lot of resources there that they can do do a, a lot of things with. I mean, it always kind of makes me go back to that 
idea that just because a company has the resources doesn't necessarily mean they can execute. Um, so you have to you have to be able to actually execute with the resources that you have. I think Zelle is something that's here to stay uh, here to stay. And we were actually reading through an article here earlier in regard to uh, PayPal and Mastercard executives who are actually talking about this space and really seeing it as as such a a great time for collaboration with all of these parties involved, big and small. I mean, they have they have opportunities to bring new products and relationships uh, to market for for banking customers of all of all ages. And, and so I, I think that you know it's interesting when you see the executives from companies like PayPal and MasterCard saying that. I mean, those are two obviously very big and important companies that are that are uh, doing a lot on their own out there. And when you talk about the opportunity to collaborate and do more, they're certainly not viewing this as a zero-sum game, right? They're not viewing this as win or, or lose. I mean, this is something where it's a big enough market opportunity that there are a lot of different ways these companies can all really succeed. Um, and I think that's that's ultimately the way uh, we look at it. I mean, we've talked before certainly about the war on cash, and I could have probably thrown five more companies in that basket if I wanted. I just you know drew the line at four. But um, anyway, I mean, it was a very good question from uh, PT in Utah. We enjoyed uh, having the chance to talk about it a little bit. And um, thanks, PT from Utah, for emailing us that question. And hey, listeners out there, remember you can always email us any questions at industryfocus at fool.com. Uh, you can hit us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. And before we wrap things up here, Matt, let's get to one to watch. Uh, earnings season really kicking in now here. It shouldn't be very hard to find something to keep on your radar here for the coming week. But what's your one to watch? Um, well, now that the big banks have already reported, I'm looking at a smaller one, uh, Axos Financial, which oh, yeah. a lot of our listeners know better, know better as Bofi or Bank of Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, they report actually tomorrow. And their stock has really underperformed the sector recently. Um, there's a lot of questions about whether they're going to be able to maintain profitability um, and all their competitive advantages going forward. So I'm looking at their earnings report to see how they're doing growth-wise, um, what their plans coming up are. Um, I know they've made a few big acquisitions like uh, Nationwide Financials Deposit Portfolio how, and how they're planning on implementing that. And it's just going to be a really interesting earnings report to watch just because the stock has gotten so much cheaper lately. Um, I'm a shareholder, and I wouldn't be opposed to adding more if I get some really good growth figures from the company when I see it tomorrow. So that's what I'm watching this week. Okay. What's the ticker? Uh, AX. All righty. Well, I'm going to be focusing on a little company uh, called Apple. The ticker is AAPL, and Apple earnings are also out uh, tomorrow, Tuesday after the market closes. And you know, with all of the all of the noise around about iPhones and missing iPhone targets and whatnot, it it seems it seems to me to be missing the mark a little bit. I mean, listen, as, as iPhones get better, they should last longer. So I'm not sure what everybody is. Uh, so upset about this for, but I think that with a company that's focusing on moving more towards services revenue, um, I think that one of those uh, avenues, one of those drivers, is going to be Apple Pay. I'd love to hear more about Apple Pay on the call. My hope is that going forward, we will uh, hear more about Apple Pay, particularly as we see this move towards uh, cashless really gaining traction. So that's going to be what I'm focusing on with Apple earnings tomorrow. Uh, okay, hey, listen, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. So, as always, uh, it's great talking with you. I'm glad we were able to make this happen today. 
Yeah, it feels like a while since I've Skyped one in. We were <laughs> yeah, off for a week I and I did one in person, so it's been a while since I've been on this end. Absolutely. Uh, and just a quick reminder for our listeners, uh, I wanted to let you know that we have an interview with Ameris Bank Corps CEO, Dennis Zember, that will be hitting next week's show. We're going to drop part one of the interview on next week's show. Uh, then we will drop part two of this interview on the following week's show. But listeners would know Ameris Bancorp. It's a company I've talked about a lot, and um, it's one where I have a lot of lot of optimism in what they're doing. And Dennis and I spoke for a little bit about the the things that they're doing. He told some stories about the financial crisis. Just really fun interview. I think you'll get a lot out of it. So look for part one of that interview to to drop next week, and then part two the following week. Uh, and as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. <laughs>